Hi, I'm Jeff Richards. I'm a partner at GGV Capital. And I am panicked about health. Hey, Howard. Uh, I'm sorry you're not feeling that well. That's all right. It is the beginning of the year, and I wanted to bring back, since you're not feeling well, I want to get right to our guest. And it's the beginning of the year. Um, when we started this podcast, I don't know, 190 podcasts ago in March 2020, one of my first guests was a growth investor who was, I'm a big fan of and just wanted some big, you know, the show was Panic with Friends. So I was like, hey, we're already panicked. Uh, it's too late to panic. Uh, what do you do? Jeff came on with a steady hand, talked about the cloud, which was, you know, turned out to be the right call at the right time. It wasn't like he was doing something different. He was just like, here's why the cloud's going to be, you know, early inning. Anyways, hundreds of percent later in a lot of the picks, Jeff's become, uh, he's our go-to guy. And it just so happens, although the world in 2022, as we begin, is not panicked, other than for your health. Um, and... Have you found a replacement for yourself, Canoe? God forbid something happened to you. I think that's impossible, unfortunately. <laughs> so, well, now at least I had you build out the studio for us. So now that uh, we're 2022, there is a bit of a panic, Canoe, and people won't notice this because the market's had a great year, third year in a row, is that uh, growth stocks, cloud stocks in particular, are all, after going up hundreds of percents, are all down 50%. Uh, I know that's hard to believe because people talk about bubbles all day, but you know, I've been talking about these tiny bubbles and we're in the process right now of having one prick. Uh, you know, I wanted to have Jeff on to talk about fundamentals versus valuations versus, you know, cloud, like repicture everything now that we've come out of COVID or 90, 70% out of COVID, 80% out of COVID, but definitely coming out of COVID for better or for worse. Where is the cloud? Let's catch up. Where have we come from? Where are we today, and how do we position for a decade more of the cloud? So it's just more of a checkup. And it's funny because Jeff said he's panicked about health, so I'm asking for a checkup on the cloud and growth. He may have other uh, reasons he's talking about health. So let's uh, get him. Jeff. Howard, how are you? Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. (laughs) Are you excited for 2022? I am. I'm really excited. I mean, look, I'm I'm a you can't be in our business and not be positive. So I'm 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 positive. There's a lot to worry about, but uh I'm pretty positive. Now when you say you're panicked about health, is it God forbid your family health or just the health sector or COVID? What do you what's on your mind? Well, I know as a frequent listener to your podcast, you talk about uh, your health and your prostate and things like that. And I don't know. I just think as we get older it it you know, I'm I, I just turned fifty. And uh, all of a sudden, health seems like a very big topic among friends. Not not just COVID, more long term systemic health issues. And you know, just thinking about friends who have have health issues, and it, it just becomes something that takes a forefront in your life. It's not really there when you're in your thirties. Yeah, you don't think about it. You don't prepare for it. You're not thinking you're invincible in your thirties. That's in your teens and twenties. But in your thirties, you're like, I don't have time to fucking worry about this. I got to make some money. Um, and then in your fifties, if your thirties and forties were good and you start, you'll start seeing this as like, why am I working this hard? I'm not going to die in 10 years. 
So <laughs> I think that's what you meant by health. Yeah, and I just I just think there's a reason a lot of folks as they get older start to invest more in healthcare and think more about healthcare and. Uh, it's, it's becoming acutely aware to me as, as, as I've had some friends who've had issues. And so it's just something I'm, I'm more focused on than I was a decade ago. Let's put it that way. No, me too. I am now a sucker for a good story. Well, I've always a sucker for a good story and storytelling around health. You know, the tech people were good at telling stories. The health people have been terrible at telling stories, mainly because of the blue pill and the drug companies. They're like the financial companies. You can't trust them. And so storytelling got lost. It just became a conglomerate industrial machine. Now the art is back, right? Like I, you know, I had eight sleep on and the guy's talking about uh, sleep fitness and then you got the whoop and you've got the Apple watch and you have all these health tech products and they're spelling better stories. It's not like anti-aging, it's longevity. It's not working out. Or even you had uh, Aaron Bali on from Carbon. Yeah. Just what he's doing. Yeah. There's no really strong IP in what he's building. He just said, I want to create better healthcare for the masses. And he's doing it. And it's a great story. And I'm I'm glad he he and Russ are, are building what they're building. Yes. So are you an investor? And we talked about it on your very I, first I, episode. I, I wish I, I passed. Oh. I mean, as Aaron shared with you, you know, it's one of my lessons learned now, 14 years into venture capital. When you meet a great entrepreneur, just back them. Yeah. Don't overthink it. Just don't overthink it. I overthought that one. I mean, the early days, as he highlighted for you, he went through a couple pivots and gyrations and something was working and then it wasn't working. And so it was a hard story to get behind in the early days. And I give a lot of credit to Russ and others that, that backed him. Uh, and so one of the things I've learned when I meet a great founder early, I just, I try to invest. It's just don't, just don't overthink it. Even if you don't like the idea, it's just if you meet somebody who's just exceptional as Aaron is, uh, you know, how many people create multiple billion dollar companies? Correct. He's got Udemy and now he's got Carbon. So just an impressive guy. Yeah, Russ is a good friend. I mean, and you're friends with Russ. So it's just back yeah. to basics as you always do. Good point. We always talk about the hair. We have good founders on. You see a great founder, back them. Now, question. COVID, two years, you see a good founder on Zoom. Is that enough? Or do you have to meet them? <laughs> I struggled with that. So where were you at for two yeah. years of writing checks? Well, I'll give you, it's, it's a, quite an interesting data point. Um, we invested twice as much last year as we did in 2019. But you or we? Uh, Again, like there's the, a, there no, is a we. It, Gary did that on no, our end. I didn't. So Yeah, same for me. Same for me. We, we backed, I think, with more than 50 companies in the U.S. alone at C-Day and B last year. Um, I, most of the founders that I've invested with, I have met on Zoom, and then we found a way to meet in person. So whether that was getting together for lunch or dinner or breakfast or um, you know, them coming to see me, me coming to see them. I, I am a big, having been a founder, I started two companies before I joined UGV, I am a big believer in long-term personal relationships. And so when I'm investing with someone, I do want to meet them. And, and you know, one of the casualties of the raise quickly model that took over in the last couple of years was... You know, very often we would meet a founder and they'd say, "Oh, I'm expecting term sheets in two weeks," and I'd say, "Well, we're probably just not a fit." You know, I, I, I if you're going, if I'm going to be on your cap table and on your board, I'd prefer to meet you and get to know you and yep. really believe in you. And 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 you should want the same, right? You should want people around you that you've met and believe in. And and so I, I think there's still an art to building those personal relationships, even when the market's moving quickly. Yeah, I find myself slowing down. I'm not. I'm just as busy, but. I'm like Gary and he, we did travel and we started seeing people and I've, I've written a few checks, but I'm just, like you said, sometimes it's just, we're not a fit just because I, I've struggled with the new timeline and the world will not wait for me. So it's a different world. But I also think it's like, if you watch, 
I don't know, Tom Brady play football, right? Tom isn't moving quickly. He's reading the game and he's as good as he's ever been. He's not moving slowly, but he's got that ability to sort of watch the game unfold in slow motion that all great athletes have. And I think to some extent in the last two years, being an investor who's a little bit further along like like you are or I are in our careers and being able to slow down and sort of take things in has enabled us to not panic and not get into things that maybe would have caused us a lot of headaches along the way. So, you know, one of the benefits of of being a larger firm like we are, we get a lot of deal flow. We meet, you know, thousands, literally, I think we meet 3,000 companies a year. And so we we have a very big focus on let's really focus on picking well. If we're only going to back 50 or 60 of those 3,000, let's take our time and, and invest well and invest wisely. And so uh, you know, I, I doubled down. We led the Series B for a company in New York called Electric.ai. I love the founder. I love the team. I love the market. Uh, and we just doubled down and led the Series D again as well. And, and so when people say to me, how are you dealing with the speed of the market? I said, well, you know, one of the things we're doing is we're doubling down with founders we really like. You know, we doubled down in HashiCorp. We doubled down in, in Electric. We doubled down in founders that we've gotten over a long period of time. And I think that model, I hope that model never goes out of style. I don't think it will. I think... We're in this period, and we'll talk about it as is it fundamentals or is it multiple compression? Is it rates? Great things are overvalued, whether it's the missing Leonardo or it's an NFT <laughs> or it's a startup. You know, we I I I, I, I was thinking through this thing. We've never had um, there's never been more capital. There's never been more tools to speculate. There's never been more platforms to discuss speculation. And there's never been more um, time. Mm -hmm. And you put all these things together and fundamentals just don't matter until they matter. Mm -hmm. And we seem to be going through this point right now, even though the markets are doing well, where the class for, and it could be, where's your head around that when you open up your screen every day and just check in (laughs) on the pulse of your portfolio? How do you think through a huge trend like the cloud in the moment of the fact that people just don't want to own cloud stocks and then have the context to know when when to give up mm-hmm. or when to double down? It's a great question. And I'm probably like you. I'm opening up my, my stock screener today and I, I track, I don't know, probably 120 companies and I, I think all but two or three are down and they're right. down this a is lot, like, six, seven, yeah. 10%. Yeah, um, which is pretty crazy because to your point, you go back five or ten years ago, you know, you'd see a one or two percent swing in a day that was big, and now you're seeing these five, ten, fifteen percent moves, and you've got major software and cloud players that are down thirty to forty percent over the last six to nine months. So, yeah. I, I think the, I guess for me, I believe a hundred percent that over the long run we are going to see a massive tailwind of revenue and cash flow and profits for these companies, and so. As long as you have that mindset, whether it's 2016, 2018, you know, there are these market blips where you know things fall out of favor. And I, I just don't, n- none of this right now to me is, is correlated with earnings. We haven't seen any, nobody's missed big on earnings. It's just due to re-rating of, of a sector based on multiples and based on what may happen with interest rates and maybe, you know, maybe some geopolitical, maybe some healthcare, maybe some um, taxes. But most of it's due to interest rates, and uh, and so I just you know at some point I probably like you and, and you I know you love to use the word nibbling I'm nibbling on some names that I love particularly in the cloud infrastructure space where I just 
you know, I look at Snowflake and GitLab and Datadog, and obviously we're a big shareholder in HashiCorp, but I, I just I just look at the amount of spend that is going to come into that space over the next decade. You know, I tweeted out an article today that was in the New York Times this weekend talking about how big banks are finally, quote unquote, moving to the cloud, you know, yeah. <laughs> which is crazy 20 years later. Uh, but the, the survey from Accenture estimated that only 12% of banking and security industry compute today is in the cloud. 12%. You're talking about 12% of $500 billion of annual IT spend. So I just look at that and say, well, gosh, if that if that data is even remotely accurate, I want to be in all these names and I want to be in them for the next five to 10 years. And if they move down, I'll just I'll just average in some more. Well, that's where I'm at. But how do you reconcile that with the fact that no one's playing by the rules in the private market? So the cloud <laughs> stocks are down 50%, but startup founders can choose and mark up their things 100%. There's some disconnect there. That's where I'm personally struggling right now. And I can't yell. What's the point of yelling? You're yelling into a sea of capital. So I just take my ball and I wish I was Tom Brady, but like I'm surveying and I'm seeing a disconnect because I'm seeing the public markets do their thing, which I love seeing them do. It's not fun, but they're working not efficiently and not perfectly, but like making some sense to me. Mm -hmm. If, if rates were going down and Cloudflare or cloud stocks were going down, I'd be a little more nervous and seeing, you know, rates shoot up and again from low levels and cloud stocks going down but at the same time that doesn't affect what's happening in pricing in the private round so when do you get to put your foot down and say guys have you checked the prices of these things (laughs) in the public markets like you can't mark your thing up a hundred percent while the public just marked down cloud stocks 50 percent i i guess two thoughts one I think it's really hard to evaluate the market we've been in for the last 24 to 36 months because we went through this massive gyration because of COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but also we've been in this so, quote unquote emergency Fed policy. I, you know, I think a lot of us would argue we didn't need to be in an emergency Fed policy over the last 69 months, but we were. And so you've had this artificial hand at work in the market. And I think a lot of what you're seeing, the the red on our screens today is due to that hand sort of pulling back, or at least the perception that it's going to pull back. And so I think it's really, you know, I've been investing since I was 12. I was lucky to grow up with a dad who was an investor. And so it's really hard to evaluate the market we've been in over the last 18, 24 months in the public market, because it's hard to evaluate what happens when we don't have emergency Fed policy. And and obviously all the stimulus that happened because of, of COVID. On the private side, I, I just think, you know, look at where Google is, look at where Amazon is. Apple just crossed $3 trillion of market value. Um, you know, at some level, what you have in the private markets is people making moonshot bets and saying, if I get the next Snowflake, if I get the next Amazon, Google, Apple, uh, I can justify what I'm doing. As you and I both know, a lot of those bets are not going to pay off. Um, you know, I, I think we are already seeing somewhat of a reset valuation wise. I think, we, you know, given that the big shift here happened in November, where you really started to see pressure on a lot of these public names, I think it usually takes a few months for it to play out. I do think we'll see some pressure on valuations in Q1 uh, and maybe even into Q2. You know, we'll, we'll see. The private market takes a while to, to, to receive the messages from the public market. But certainly if you are raising capital from people like Tiger or D1 or Altimeter that are heavily invested in the public market, uh, I would imagine at some level they're re-rating their thinking on some of the valuations they're willing to pay for pre-IPO companies as well. I just think it takes time to play out. What I try to tell founders is, look, 
you're the one that's going to have to live with the valuation and all the implications that come along with that. So just be smart about it. Don't get out over your skis. The valuation that matters is where your company's valued in 10 years, not where it's valued in January of 2022. Love it. Great. Uh, both sides of the table advice there. It's so funny because when I discussed it with public markets in 08, you know, as the crash was happening and leading up to the crash, you know, and I got into, you know, the startup world, just seemed like such a disconnect where you could, you know, mm-hmm. raise, if you had, could tell a story and raise money in, and it just felt like win-win, like the valuations were low and the people were great. And here we are, flash forward today. I think the same thing feels like it's happening in Web3 or whatever we want to call it, where supposedly the best people are going and they're leaving cush jobs because they feel it in their bones. Um, but yet they're taking valuations that, and they should know better, where, wait a minute, guys, your, your end game's supposed to be 10 years, not today. I just don't see the same opportunities as everybody else sees, but that could be just the old man yelling at the field. Uh, <laughs> and I hate being that guy, but I'm telling you, man, like if someone's asking my opinion, the disconnects are really bad. And, and the public markets seem to be more interesting than the private markets. And I've been saying that for about a year. Um, I hate seeing what I thought come true. And now, um, so you're saying it'll catch up. I do agree with you. But there is so much money, Jeff. I just, yeah, yeah. It just boggles my mind. Well, you have what? Uh, the, the venture capital industry last year was three times what it was two years ago, I think. or so, 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 I don't wow. have the numbers in front of me, but it, it was significantly higher in 21 than it was in 2019. And we all thought 2019 was frothy. So there is a lot of money chasing a, 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 a small number of companies. It's a great time to be a founder, right? It's a mm-hmm. great time to be a founder with an idea and, and be able to raise capital. The trick is to be a founder that can then execute and live up to the expectations. Because it's not, you know, look, I raised money in 1999 and 2000 on a, on a company that was actually doing quite well, but we raised at a multi-hundred million dollar valuation and we didn't live up to it. And the next two years were extremely painful. It was brutal. And I walked away with nothing. You know, I founded a company that was worth several hundred million dollars funded by tier one investors and I walked away with nothing. And, you know, I had to listen to my father-in-law give a toast at my wedding talking about how when he met me, he thought I was this uber wealthy guy. And now I had no job, <laughs> so, you know, but I got married and, and Wait a minute, the story here is that every father-in-law is a prick or what, what's <laughs> not, the real not story? mine. He's amazing. I love him to death. Yeah. But, uh, but, uh, but I think you just, like you said, you live and learn, right? You learn yeah. through those experiences. You learn raising kids, you learn about health, you learn about all these things as you get older. And so where, where I, I, I think one piece of advice that I would share with founders is get people around the table who will give you good long-term advice. And we saw that when COVID hit, we saw people who were panicked and we saw people who didn't panic. And now I think we see founders who are, there are founders out there that are raising capital at reasonable valuations. And those will be the ones that, you know, then go on to have very successful public companies that aren't overhyped and aren't overvalued and they just build and they execute. And, you know, one of the advantages that you have and I have as public market investors is we often meet those companies privately right? You know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Smartsheet and Mark Mater. I've known Mark since we were in college. And so I can reliably put capital behind him. Uh, he doesn't know I'm doing it, but I can reliably buy stock in his company or Snowflake, where I know the CEO, or, you know, Monday, where we met the team, or Square, where we were an investor. I can put money into these companies, know that I'm backing really good teams in huge markets and sleep well at night, knowing that, sure, there may be a valuation re-rating that comes along and it hurts and you get punched in the face, but 
you know, I don't need to sell my position, pay the taxes and start over. Uh, so I'll, I'll buy more when it goes down and bet on the long five to 10 year term. Yeah, it's a really good point. I'm, I'm saying that personally, for example, because I'm new to the business, you know, 10 years or 15 years, I still consider myself new. And we're going through the cycle of companies that go public. And, and I, I was looking at numbers today, and I'm not recommending buys or sells. But I was looking Schwab. I, if you had told me that Schwab would be trading at 10 times sales and Robinhood would be trading at six times sales uh, five years ago, four years ago, three years ago, two years ago, then today when I looked it up, I'm like, I, it's just humbling to realize I don't know who's stupid or who's smart, <laughs> but Schwab ain't growing the way Robinhood's growing, nor has it ever since its early days. Um, and I looked at those two metrics before I came on the air today in, in, in the cloud stocks. So maybe we can talk about the cloud, but I'm like, okay, this is, this is weird. That's a pretty amazing stat. Uh, I get why Schwab is doing well because the government's printing money. But at the same time, I don't, I don't believe this panic is the beginning of the end because people are putting money to work in Schwab. Like people want to put money to work. There's just this massive re-rating going on, and there's some opportunity out there. It's the first time I felt like this, mm -hmm. probably since, uh, at least in tech, uh, at least public tech, since March of 2020. But, I, it, but prices are still up 300% in, in many cases. Mm -hmm. So we're up 300% after being down 50%. So it's like trying to figure out where in the playing field we are is the key to this business. In terms of the cloud, you're just saying spend continues to be enormous and the fundamentals continue to be fantastic. So you just have to keep that in the background. Well, I, I think, look, the, the, the re-rating that's happening right now, I think is, I don't, I don't think, I mean, I could be wrong. I don't think it's due to fundamentals, right? I, don't, I haven't seen a wave of software cloud companies come out over the last few months and announce that they missed their earnings. In fact, most of them are, are beating and raising. And so what you just have, you have a sentiment shift and, and that happens in markets. It happened, I remember in the, I think it was the uh, Q1 of 2016, uh, there was a big sentiment shift and cloud multiples took a nosedive. In fact, here I'm looking at the chart right now. In December of uh, 13, the top five software companies were trading at 30. And in January of 16, they went down to 10. So it went down, you know, the, the top five software companies just got crushed in a, in a very short period of time. And Q1 of 2016 ended up being a great time to invest in cloud. So right now we have a sentiment shift where a lot of public investors, um, by the way, many of whom just got crushed by the S&P 500. The S&P 500 was up Crush 20% me. last year. Yeah, I, There was a guy that tweeted out this weekend a stat that only three of the, the top hedge funds he tracks beat the S&P 500. Every single hedge fund lost. In fact, I'm an investor in three hedge funds, all very smart people. Two of them were below zero, and one of them was in single digits up. So they did not have very good years. And a, a lot of these folks are being forced to move out of momentum and growth themes that they love. But I, I, I believe it's a sentiment shift. I don't believe it's a long-term fundamental shift. And so if you believe that and you can afford to be in the market and take those downward shifts and put more capital to work, I'm with you. This is the first time since March... Uh, you know, what was it? The second week of March of 2020, where we we were doing this podcast and talking about the fact that there were some historic buying opportunities. I do think there are some great names that are, you know, they're not quote unquote cheap, but if you look at the growth ahead for them, particularly companies that are indexed to cloud growth in a way that is rateable, 
or consumption-based. So Snowflake, obviously Google, Amazon, Microsoft with their hosted platforms, um, you know, Datadog, Cloudflare, all of these companies that are sort of in a model where as more people consume more of the cloud, they win. They're not seat-based software models. I, I just think those companies have exceptional upside. And, you know, when you come in will matter, but over the long, long, very long run, if you have a 10-year time horizon, it won't matter as much as just building up a, a base in those companies. And international. So I've seen this story before. I don't do much international. And every time I dabble, I'm reminded why, you know, <laughs> if you're not, if you don't know what you're doing, it's tough. Well, I, I've never seen the continued mess that is international. How do you think about that? <laughs> well, I do agree with you. I think it's hard. Um, I often tell folks, if you are investing in the U.S., it's it's sort of like playing baseball. And if you're trying to invest outside the U.S., you're playing baseball while others are playing cricket. They look very <laughs> exactly. similar, but they're different games. And I think that is one of the challenges in investing in Latin America, India, China, uh, in many ways, the, the markets function differently, the economies function differently, and the governments function differently. And it it does create a lot of pain for people who are not local in those markets. So, you know, we're we're lucky that we've been we've been in those markets now for over twenty years. We have people on the ground. We tend to have pretty good insights into these companies when they're private and then become public. So it's um, it is volatile. It's challenging. I am I am very bullish on Latin America. We we think there's growth opportunity in Latin America that reminds us of China a decade ago. But with the caveat that you have to be willing to take some of the bumps and bruises along the way. Um, but the digitization that is happening in India, Latin America, obviously China, where folks are, you know, you've got literally two or three billion people that don't have a bank account. They're all going to have a bank account. None of them have ever participated in the market. You know, they'll all participate in some form of the market, whether it's Robinhood or some other flavor of, of, of Robinhood. Um, Bitcoin and Web3 is an opportunity to bring those folks into the market in a way that perhaps will happen faster than it would have with a descent, you know, with a centralized financial system. Healthcare, the digitization of healthcare in those markets, the digitization of education. So there's just so many categories where, you know, I always like to remind people there's 7.3 billion people in the world. There's only 330 million in the US. We get very US centric. Oh, I can walk mm. down the street, go to an ATM, take 500 bucks out of an ATM. I've I have a cell phone. I have a hundred, you know, whatever it is, seventy-inch TV on my wall. The rest of the world doesn't have that yet. And if we can continue to see incomes rise in those markets in a positive way, um, we could see other economies, you know, perhaps that don't grow as fast as China. But if they do grow over the next five to ten years, it's going to be great. And hopefully, will be great for a lot of the U.S. companies that are trying to play in those markets. Um, I think we need to continue to be cooperative and, and be collaborative on a global stage. Uh, you know, in some ways, we took a, a step back in that in the last four years, but uh, hopefully, we can make inroads to being a, a great global partner for these other economies who want to, you know, frankly, they just want their people to be able to live like we do. Yeah, I like that. But if if I'm just a regular old investor, is it? I'm trying to think which American company. So if it's India or Eastern Asia or Latin America, which, you know, if I'm just a regular investor at home and I want to get cute with those markets. I still think it's probably Apple or Google. That's why mm -hmm. probably they haven't come down with everybody else. Who are the native companies that benefit the most from American companies that benefit the most from tech in those up and comer nations? 
Well, I think I think Zoom will be another one on that list. I think it'll take time, but I think Eric is a very global thinking human being, and I think the future of work is going to be more collaborative, more remote. I don't think we've yet figured out all the implications of this trend towards remote work, but I don't know about you. I mean, I'm seeing it across our portfolio. We've got 200 plus companies. Every one of them has a much more global workforce than they did two years ago. Every mm. one of them has people all over the country. You know, one of the CEOs I spoke with, uh, it was probably last summer, and we were talking about, you know, the quote unquote return to work policy. He said, there is no return. We don't have any offices anymore. We got rid of them. Our, our entire team is, is, is all over the US and all over the world. And so I think that trend is really interesting. I also think it's going to have really interesting political trends, not to go too far off topic, but I think what Francis Suarez is doing in Miami is, is pretty interesting, right? He For is a mayor to pull off this much attention outside of New York is phenomenal. He's marketing the city and saying, come to our city. We're going to have low crime. We're going to have low taxes. We're going to make it a great place to work. I can't think of other examples where we've had mayors be that aggressive in trying to recruit people to come to their city, uh, and it's working. I mean, obviously, you've had private citizens like Keith Reboy that have been very influential there as well. But I actually think that could be a very interesting trend. You know, you look at what happened with New York, switching from de Blasio, who by all accounts was a disaster, to Eric Adams, who's taking a much stronger stance on COVID and, and, and cryptocurrency. And so I, I think there's an interesting political current that we could see this year where you know, do we see more mayors across the country and even folks around the world say, hey, come to our come to our city. This is going to be a great place to work because the economic benefits are going to be real in a way that I'm not sure they would have been two or three years ago because not that many people could really relocate, right? You couldn't really be at a private tech company in San Francisco and say, hey, I'm just going to move to Park City. You know, somebody would say, well, gee, you're not committed. You're not focused. Mm. You're not here that often. Yeah. But man, I'm seeing that left and right. People are in LA, they're in Park City, they're in Austin, they're in Denver, they're in Atlanta, they're in Indianapolis, they're in Pittsburgh. So I, I think we're in chapter one of what the post-COVID work environment looks like. And I think there will be, you know, again, companies like Zoom, I think Square, you know, benefits, Square Cash, uh, PayPal. I'm, I'm big on, you know, I'm a big thematic investor. One of my big themes is digitization of money. So I'm long Square, I'm long PayPal, I'm long D uh, Local, I'm long Adyen. I think those companies benefit as it gets easier to send and spend and share capital, not just among consumers, but also small small business. I'm very bullish on small business. I think Square unleashed you know a huge opportunity for small businesses. You've seen Shopify, Ring Central. We're investing in a ton of companies that are that are in that market. Toast went public last year. That's in that space. Uh, we're investors in Slice and Electric and you know a whole bunch of companies that are powering small businesses. The tools. Last year, by the way, you, you know this stat, uh, we had the most new business applications in America we've ever had. So we had this great migration from the workforce, but guess what? A lot of those folks are starting new companies and all of those new companies are going to get built with technology. They're replacing companies that died out that weren't using technology. They were literally using pen and paper and a cash register. All Anybody starting a business today in America is probably going to build it with some form of Square, Shopify, Big Commerce, Slice, Etc. And I think that's incredibly exciting and a great trend to bet on. Thank you. I agree. I guess I'm worried about because I'm older than you. Is like, what if we're wrong? I'm kidding. <laughs> so, so if we're wrong, we're fucked. But you're right. So, two companies that stand out. I got it. D Local. I know now it's on my screen. Uh, it's been whack, like all companies post IPO now. And I love, I tell people like, I don't pay up for IPOs, 
but I do like to watch a screen of ones that get hammered because this is when, you know, opportunities come in. So what does D-Local do? So D-Local is, is think of what, uh, and by the way, I, I, I would love to be an investor in Stripe. You know, I mean, no, I, I, I understand, but I just, that name yeah. is interesting because it's on my screen now. Yeah. I, I mean, think of D-Local as doing what Stripe does, but in, a, in emerging markets and, you know, what Stripe is doing, what Adyen is doing, what Square is doing, they're all making it easier for people to spend money, for small businesses to get paid, for people to pay their employees, for people to borrow capital, right? Think about how hard it's been for a small business to borrow capital for, I mean, really forever, right? Um, and so if you think about Latin America, I mentioned earlier Latin America, I mean, this is a company that's growing incredibly quickly, uh, capturing a huge share of wallet with merchants in, in Latin America. Um, and, you know, if you're a merchant in Latin America and you've historically been running on pen and paper and dealing with some legacy bank, again, it's the equivalent of an American business shifting to Shopify and Stripe, right? That is happening in emerging markets. It's happening in Europe with Adyen. It's happening in Latin America with DLocal. I just think that trend is a massive investable trend for the next decade. And if you're patient, you can handle these gyrations in the, in the stock, um, but there is there is a lot of ups and downs because when the market shifts and sentiment shifts out of favor on high growth, like it has in the last 30 days, these kinds of names get pounded because investors don't trust them. You mentioned earlier, why are people flocking to Amazon and Google and Apple and Microsoft? Because they know they're probably not going to lose money. Those those companies are going to continue to print money. They're gonna they've got tons of cash flow. Great. They're leadership. like the new bonds. Like I hate saying that, but it's just how people are be- treating them. Yeah. Right or yeah. wrong, that's how they're being treated in a world of zero interest rates. It's like, I'm not going to buy a bond, so I'll buy the equivalent of a stock bond, which is Apple. Yeah. And so when the market shifts and risk goes out of favor, um, you know, these high growth, unproven companies get whacked. But you and I both know that's our opportunity. If we're right and D local has an opportunity like Square or PayPal, you know, when PayPal went public, when eBay spun it out and went public, I bought it. And I said, this is a great company that's well positioned in digital commerce. And that was a good buy. Um, I just don't think there are that many opportunities to find these companies before the market figures out that they are going to be strong, reliable growers that have good cash flow. And that's that's where if you do your homework and, you know, the risk rewards high, the, the risk is high because in the short term, you feel like an idiot and it's painful. But in the long run, if you nail a, a 5 or 10x return, you, you feel pretty good about it. Yeah. So cloud, SMB, e-commerce, same as always, a little bit of fintech, same as how we always have you discuss. DLocal's a new name that I'm watching. Zoom is one that I added to my AT80. I remember you and I talking about it in March. It was obviously the big winner as of DocuSign. Like, it makes sense. They were the poster children of the digital COVID era. Zoom is now running into the conglomerate of Google and Microsoft. Microsoft with Teams and Google with me. Mm-hmm. I personally, you know, at my Zoom Passover, I got very long at 100. I went to 500. Obviously, I sold along the way some, but it's an 8 to 80 name of mine. And I'm under assault personally, <laughs> mentally, because, um, because it, you know, anytime you have a winner and you give back wins, people need to hear these stories. Uh, and I'm trying to reconcile um, when is it, and you, no one knows the right answer, when does the clamp of, because I don't use Teams, and I, I 
I do use Google Meet more because that's what people are choosing if they choose. I'm not going to say I got to do it on Zoom. Um, so Zoom has other problems maybe than most, just but maybe the international I'm not thinking about. Does Zoom have that kind of brand recognition outside the U.S.? Well, I, I'm like you. I mean, I, I bought Zoom. I bought some in the IPO and I bought more after and then wrote it up to whatever it went, 440 or 450. I, I, I sold a little bit. But, you know, a lot of folks would be very critical of me because I don't sell very often. I just don't see the point in selling. If I have a stock that goes from 10 to 100 and I sell it, you know, I, I then pay 40, 50 percent in taxes and I start over again. And I just don't I don't really look at my brokerage account as something that's funding my lifestyle. And so hmm. I'd rather just own things for the long run. So um, I unfortunately wrote it up and have written it down. But I think that Eric is a global citizen. I think he has a global strategy. I think he has a product and a business that is incredibly growth oriented. I do agree with your point about uh, Microsoft in particular. I think what they did to Slack was, you know, was incredibly painful to watch with mm -hmm. teams where they just basically give it away for free. Mm -hmm. And obviously they're trying to do the same thing with video now. So it, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I just think the market's enormous. I mean, if there are billions of people around the world who are going mm. to be using video to chat, uh, I think that company has a chance to be much larger than it is today. And you just have to be willing to deal with some of the short-term pain. And but again, I don't. I, I, I maybe it's a weird investing mindset. I just don't think of it as, gosh, it went from sixty to five hundred, and now I'm at one eighty. Wouldn't I have been happier taking my you know hundred thousand dollars? paying 50% in taxes and starting over because what would I do with the 50K? Put it into something else? I mean, I just, I just don't, it just doesn't give me any personal satisfaction and I don't need the, I don't need the money to do that. So I think there's a lot of benefit in, you know, we always like to say in venture capital, the fact that we hold for long periods of time is a feature, not a bug. Yes. And I think the same thing is true in public markets. If you can, if you just look at the chart, look at the chart for Amazon. If you had sold every time it had doubled and then pulled back, you'd have lost a lot of money. And 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 many people, you know, many I I did that. I owned Amazon in the early, early days. I sold it when I made like four or five X and thought I was a hero and missed out on a huge run and fortunately got back in at some point. But I just I just have learned the hard way if you have a long-term view and you can find great teams in big markets and afford to not need the capital to fund your lifestyle. It's an amazing thing to be able to put more money to work and just let it compound. And the, the, the tweet I shared earlier, uh, the, the guy was talking about, if you'd put $10,000 in the S&P 500 in 1982, that's now worth a million dollars, and it's paying 12000 a year in dividend income. So it's paying more in dividend income than it was when you started. The S&P 500, not a sexy bet, mm -hmm. but that's better than you would have done in probably 98% of hedge funds, right? So we all run around getting excited about investing in sexy funds, but the reality is very often just being an unsexy investor and letting it compound is a wonderful place to be. Yeah, fantastic. Web3, you have so much capital to put to work. How does Web3 fit in yet? We were lucky to be an investor in Coinbase. That was a, a great oh, return well. for us. And um, we've got a few other investments in the space. I, I you know, Admittedly, we have not gone as deep in the space as others like Andreessen Horowitz have. I, I personally am very bullish just because I love to see that much innovation and that much capital and that much talent going after a category where I think there's a lot of opportunity for innovation, right? I mean, when when people like Elizabeth Warren sort of decry crypto, I, I sort of look at it and say, well, 
are you a fan of Wells Fargo? Because last I checked, they've paid billions in fines for screwing over consumers for the last decade. So I love the idea that there is real innovation, real capital, real talent congregating around the space. There's some pieces of the model that I don't love right now. I don't love the idea that you sort of do these inside deals, you give a bunch of people favorable treatment, and then you pump it out to the public at inflated valuations, and then and then no products ever materialize. I think that, and that has largely been true for a lot of these projects. So I think we're still in the, you know, if you sort of look at it as the internet, we're still in the 98, 99 version where there's pets.com and a bunch of other stuff that won't actually work. But long-term, I'm very bullish. I think that the the concept of sort of reinventing finance, you know, I'm looking at it today, I'm, I'm, I'm refinancing a mortgage on, on, on a house. I mean, I'm in month four working with a bank that I've worked with for a decade yeah. that has all my financial records and it's it's as painful as it could possibly be, and so there's so much room for innovation in the banking industry that I, I hope I hope this is the early days of massive innovation in that space. I think there'll be some big winners that come out of it, and I'm I'm pretty bullish and excited. And I hope I hope the U.S. regulatory climate sees it as we saw the internet, which is let's embrace this, let's regulate it, but let's embrace it and really try to be a leader in it around the world. Because I do think the biggest audience for Web3 is actually going to be emerging markets where you're not going to see the traditional banking system replicated. You're not going to see traditional you know, models of lending and ATMs and things like that. You're just not going, to, you're not going to see those in emerging markets, but you've got an audience of billions that could benefit from this technology. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm just shocked when I see Goldman, Schwab, Pfizer at all-time highs when, <laughs> when we were supposed to have been working on disrupting them. It feels <laughs> futile some days when I go, why don't I just bet on the machine? But you're right. I think a lot of it has to do with, I think there's some skepticism how our government, rightly so. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some skepticism about this stuff. That's why Coinbase continues to trade poorly, even though it's a great valuation. Why Robinhood continues to trade poorly, even though it's still a great valuation for the company. Um, but it is disheartening for me, I don't know for you, to see Schwab. Oh, nothing against them. Like, this is my best choice uh, in 2000. I, I quit them years ago for the reasons that I got into venture. Same thing with Goldman. So I think we're seeing what happens when the creator economy hits money, which is now everybody in a Discord channel thinks they're Goldman Sachs. They're starting <laughs> Goldman Sachs again. And guess what? Maybe everybody shouldn't be a landlord and maybe everybody shouldn't be Goldman Sachs. Maybe one Goldman Sachs is just bad enough. So I think... That's the part that uh, is the Wild West right now. And we wanted it, so we got it. You want to, you know, everybody wants to be Goldman Sachs. I think Mark Andreessen and and firm have done, A16 has done a great job of being kind of the Goldman Sachs 2.0, which is just a little nicer, a little bit softer, a little bit more media friendly, uh, but with all the profits and, and bells and whistles that a Goldman offers other than trading, but they're all getting their licenses and going there. So it's like we're getting modern versions of these institutions. So I think these are just the hiccups that, that come along the way, which are healthy. Is there anything other than health that you think that people don't see that could cause a problem in 2022? Well, that's a great question. Um, you know, I'm not a political commentator, but I think the, <laughs> the fragmentation that we have on the far left and the far right is a, is a challenge. And you just love to see people move more to the center and be working more collaboratively. I, I just, I think that was one of the reasons many of us were very supportive of Biden becoming president was to hopefully see more, you know, somebody who'd been in DC for a long period of time, able to collaborate, able to get people to work together so we could 
make sure that we, you know, maintain our leadership position in the global economy. And I, that's probably my biggest concern is just, you know, can we make the right moves as a, as a country to, to continue to innovate and lead over the next decade? And, you know, I worry about debt. I mean, we have record amounts of debt. And in some ways, that's what's kept us from raising, I believe that's what's kept us from raising interest rates, because guess who pays the most in, <laughs> in interest expense? Correct. Our country. So I think we have some systemic issues that we have to figure out, and and that's probably my biggest concern. I I just don't I don't see at a micro level. I don't see the migration to cloud slowing down. I don't see the migration to digital health slowing down. I don't see the migration to e-commerce and you know all these categories that you and I are investing in. I don't speed see that up slowing no down. matter what. Yeah, it's 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 speeding up no matter what. And so the biggest risk is just can we can we sustain ourselves as a as a country over the long run? You know, hopefully we don't have any. Um, you know, significant geopolitical conflict. There's obviously lots of conversations about that. And then, you know, look, I go back to the point you made, which is are Microsoft, Apple, Google, et cetera, more dominant than they've ever been? A hundred percent. Yeah. The the single biggest thing that people should be rooting for is more venture capital and yep. more IPOs. I mean, an IPO is, we had record IPOs in 2021, record IPOs in 2020. All of those are companies that are now well capitalized. They have better management teams. They sort of made it through the gauntlet that are now ready to compete at a level that they wouldn't have been able to as private companies. And so I think we're, um, our, let's not kill the golden goose. You know, whenever Bernie or Warren or Robert Reich or one of these folks come out and attack Elon or Jeff Bezos, it drives me crazy because guys, we have an engine that every other country in the world is envious of. It's why we have the highest wages in the world. It's why we have the lowest unemployment. We, we don't even appreciate how good it is. And so root for that ecosystem, root for continued innovation. Can we do better at distributing wealth? A hundred percent. I'd love to see us find a better way to to drive capitalism, to give more to the the ecosystems and the communities where these companies get created. But let's continue to champion entrepreneurs. Let's make it easy to start businesses. Let's make it easy for them. I mean, look at what what has Bezos now hired? They've hired something like two million people who work at Amazon. That's incredible. So how mm-hmm. do we go create more of those and keep that engine going? You know, he's single handedly raising wages for people in our country. He's done more to raise wages in our country than, than Bernie has, right? He's forcing other employers to pay their people more and provide things like education and healthcare. So I, I just, let's, let's not, in, in the realm of politics, let's not lose focus on the golden goose, the engine, the venture capital engine, the IPO engine, the things that have been able to drive innovation in our economy. I just think it's a, it's a superpower that we have and we don't want to lose it. Yeah, perfect. I I think that's why I'm looking up. That's why DLocal, like even though I own enough Robinhood, the broken IPOs are interesting to me because, like you just said, the key thing is they're armed with capital. I think the one thing we don't know is multiple compression. The second thing we don't know, like you said, is geopolitical. The third thing that we can't predict is interest rates and how mm-hmm. it, when it becomes political enough to say, well, let's pay more interest on our loans, even though we're the biggest fucking debtor. <laughs> so that that's a good point. And then the fourth thing is. This is the one that, and I'll just have you comment and we'll let you go, is is the cultural build. Like, so I look at DLocal, I look at Robinhood, I look at other broken IPOs right now, and I, and even Coinbase can, can be considered a broken IPO because it's trading below whatever the opening print is, even though it's not broken. Is that, how do you deal? They're dealing with remote just like everybody else is dealing with remote. So the one wild card here that I see which is, you know, which it's never pleasant to try and buy things that are down 40-50% because it shakes you is that like they're dealing with these problems too. They may have the capital and they may have the knowledge, but they're dealing with remote teams. They're only one year into dealing with remote teams as well. There's a lot of learning that still has to be done on the job at warp speed. Can you comment on that or should I am I overworrying? 
No, no, no. I agree 100%. I think that's where you really have to have confidence in the teams. I, yeah. I look at, you know, Square's a good example where Square did a quote unquote broken IPO where it was priced lower than its last private round. And everybody's like, oh, woe is me. This, you know, this is a bad signal for the company, blah, 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 blah. Well, you know, you could have bought Square at, I think it was went all the way down to like nine or $8 a share. Today it's at 150. Now it was trading at, I don't know, 275 or, or two, 280 earlier this year. Yeah. So it's down at 150, but if you're up 15x from where you you bought it uh, a few years ago, you're pretty happy. I just think you have to execute. And and you look at Square, they had Gokul, they had Sarah Fryer, they had Jack Dorsey. I mean, Gokul and Sarah Fryer are two of the greatest operators of the last decade in Silicon Valley. So when I'm doing research on a company, what I really try to get insight into, I'll go ask the early venture investors, how good is this team? If you give them capital, what do they do with it? Right? I'm, I'm, on, I'm on the board of a public company. We've had this conversation a lot. If investors give you capital, what do you do with it? And I think that is the magic formula when you're mm-hmm. thinking about what to buy when sentiment shifts like it does right now. Am I buying a really great management team that does well when given capital? Because it's never been easier, or at least it wasn't last year, for public companies to raise capital. The question is, what do you do with it? And you look at folks like Jeff Lawson at Twilio, who's just done an amazing job building that company. I mean, He's done a lot with the capital he's been given. Sarah and Gokul and Jack did a lot with the capital they've been given. And I think that's going to be the challenge for these companies that went public in the last 12 months and are trading below their price. What do you do? You know, mm-hmm. do you, do you, what do you do with the capital you've been given? And if they execute, there are going to be some 10, 15, 20x yep. returns from here. You just yep. got to pick right. Yep. Go on the Coifin IPO dashboard. I, I urge people, it's, it's January 2022. It's like, if there's going to be winners, you're going to go look for the down 50% IPOs of last year in software and tech and start doing some work. We actually have that moment. It's not, yep. you're not going to get it looking at the S&P right now. And so I really appreciate the insights. Uh, thanks for your time, my man. I hope 2022 is great for you as it has been, and uh, we'll get you back soon. Same to you, my friend. Take care. All right. Talk to you. K-Nut, your fave, my fave. Absolutely. He's speaking fast, but no gibberish. Man, that guy is succinct. He's succinct. He's got the macro thought through. It's a tough market right now because all his ideas, even though they're down, are still up huge. And so you still got to understand what you own, and it gets hard because these things rarely are easy. And uh, so hopefully that helps people. I, I selfishly was trying to get uh, some insight for myself, but that's what we do. It's a podcast. We uh, have ulterior motives. <laughs> the uh, Feel Better Canoe, you are listening to Panic with Friends. Uh, you can search my name, Howard Lindzen, uh, Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google. Uh, you can follow me, subscribe, you get uh, an alert. Uh, once a week, we do this panic with friends. I sit with entrepreneurs, investors, venture capitals. We are investing for profit and joy. It is not easy. There are periods of panic and FOMO and excitement. Uh, they can all happen together, as they seem to be doing here as we enter 2022. I appreciate uh, your time, and uh, we will see you next week. Howard Lindzen is the founder and general partner at Social Leverage. All opinions expressed by Howard and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Social Leverage or StockTwits. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. 
Guests may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast.